Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Jonathan Linquist. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Uh, not much, not much. Uh, just got back to um, to California from Sweden, mm. uh, covering the Global Series. So it's good to be back. How was? Uh, yeah, I know you were telling me. You, I guess you got back on Monday or so. It was. Uh, I was following all of the stuff from from here in Vancouver on on social media and watching what you and Ufe and all the guys were were getting up to, and it seemed like a good time. And I watched the game itself. But how was um, how was the reception down there? Because obviously. This wasn't the first time that um, NHL has been playing regular season games in Sweden, but I wonder as we move forward, you know, if there is a big appetite for it. I know I interact with a ton of Swedish followers all the time on Twitter who listen to the podcast and, and follow me online. So I know that there's a lot of interest there and, and a lot of, you know, appetite for, for NHL action there. But moving forward, do you think this is something that's going to become more of a regular occurrence as we potentially head towards some sort of an expansion and however that's going to look? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, I got to say I was positively surprised by the atmosphere uh, at the game. It was good. It was loud, um, which is always hard, like when you have two teams and neither team is the home team right? Uh, in a practical sense. So, but it was, it was a pretty good atmosphere and uh, the tickets sold out. And I mean, to be honest, they were, they weren't cheap. Uh, but peop- they still sold out pretty fast, so that kind of tells you a lot about the interest. So, um, from what I hear, this is something that's going to keep happening. And I mean, Sweden is—I um, don't know if it's as big of a market, obviously, as other countries. Uh, I know, obviously, there's—I uh, heard it's there's more people in China than in Sweden. I've uh, heard that. Yeah, I, I got to run the numbers, got to run the analytics, yeah. but I, I think uh, <laughs> off the eye test, it seems like that. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's still like an important market, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, with the amount of players. Um, we're around 10% uh, now uh, of the total NHL players. So I think the NHL want to hold that re- relationship um, on a good level. And um, yeah, so I'm hoping it's going to keep happening. 
Yeah, so I mean, let's talk a bit about the game itself. You know, there's obviously out of one game, you can't really necessarily read too much into it, and, and especially in, in the grand scheme of an 82 game schedule. But like, I guess, especially now that, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday evening, we just saw uh, the New Jersey Devils come home and kind of lay a, lay, lay a smackdown on the Washington Capitals, 6 nothing, I believe. And then you see Edmonton struggling once again and, and falling in defeat to the Boston Bruins. And it seems like, you know, just watching that game, whenever McDavid wasn't on the ice, it, I don't know, did it kind of feel like the Oilers were just sort of killing time and waiting for him to get out there and do something because it sure seemed like that just from 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 watching it at home oh absolutely and i mean it felt like as soon as they they kind of got stuck it was mcdavid and dry throwing a couple chips see what happens and that's kind of the only thing they got going for him um so and it's got to be frustrating for mcdavid this there was this one sequence in the third period uh, where he just tried to jam his way through on the left side. People watching the game might remember. He did it two times in a row at the blue line. It wasn't with speed or anything. It was just a pure frustration play, like trying to just wrestle away through three guys. And even for him, it's not possible. And it kind of, for me, as you said, I mean, sample size, whatever. But that those two plays kind of thing about the frustration and he must feel already because he looks so alone, to be honest. Yeah, he does. And I guess, you know, if you are going to, from the NHL's perspective, if you're going to try to grow the game and, um, you know, establish more of a stronghold there and, and, and create new fans in, in different markets, like sending a guy like McDavid to, for people to get to see him up close when they don't typically get to do so is probably a good way to go about it. You know, I was watching, I was watching today and the only goal Edmonton did score was McDavid essentially. He was kind of just like standing still and Ty Ratty passed him the puck and he all of a sudden in a blink of an eye was going 100 miles an hour past Dan Ochara and wound up scoring on a breakaway. It's like some of the stuff this guy's capable of doing physically is, sort of a, a a great encapsulation of how the NHL's evolved over the years and where it's headed. And obviously he's sort of a, a freak athlete that can do stuff other guys can't, but that sort of speed and skill on display is the NHL's biggest selling point to new fans. So I imagine kind of marketing that and showing that off as much as possible is going to be the way to go moving forward. Yeah. But I think a big selling point is that you have to get uh, like native stars in whichever country you're playing. And right. uh, the, the best example now in Finland, they got Sasha Barkov and, and Patrick Heine going there. And that's, I think that's a super smart move. Um, I, I obviously, I get what NHL did here, uh, bringing Heischer to, to Switzerland and Dreisaitl to Germany for the exhibition games. And then maybe when you play the regular season game, you want to have like a a more established hockey market, whatever, so you know that everything is going to work out in terms of the ice, in terms of the clock, everything like that. So they brought the regular season game to Sweden. But, I, I mean, I would love to see a more, uh, quote-unquote, Swedish team. Um, I remember, like, last year I talked to uh, Philip Forsberg after a game out in L.A., and he brought it up and brought it up in himself, just said that, hey, we want to go. Uh, so there's definitely, like, guys like that they want to go the swedish player want to play at home and a team like nashville would be terrific to, to see in sweden if i'm talking from from that perspective i think that's very important hmm. yeah no obviously especially like for young kids right if you can kind of relate to a guy who kind of maybe had a similar upbringing as, as yours from your hometown all of a sudden it kind of creates this different emotional bond than someone who you know is just a guy who seems like it's this like far away dream that you could never actually live yourself Absolutely. And I mean, people, you kind of start following the NHL most of the times, I would say, because of your favorite player, especially when you come 
from a different, like if you're from Winnipeg or whatever, you're going to follow the Jets. Uh, but if you're from anywhere in Sweden, you'll follow the team with your favorite player. Uh, so that's important. And usually that player is someone who has, you has a connection to. He might be from the same place, uh, whatever. Remember for myself, uh, I mean, growing up, uh, being old enough to follow the NHL is, for me, it was Vancouver. Uh, mm. being from the same town as Marcus Nassan and Sabine. So it's kind of obvious for me. Um, so that's usually the way it works. If you're, if you're a fan from um, uh, another country than the U.S. Or, or Canada. So obviously, you know, McDavid is, is one thing, but I do think that if you're looking kind of down the, the Oilers roster, one of the guys who is going to play a big role in making or breaking their season based on, his health and sort of how effective he's going to be able to be this year is, is a guy like Oscar Clefbaum, especially, you know, they lose Andre Sekera in the preseason for the season, basically. And that leaves a big hole in their blue line. And, and one of the reasons why the Oilers regressed so much last year, aside from the fact that they didn't get the goaltending from Cam Talbot was their power play really struggled. And it's remarkable that Connor McDavid was able to lead the league in scoring and have well, 107 or 108 points or whatever he wound up having, considering that, his power play numbers weren't actually that impressive just because the Oilers were, I think, like historically bad at both drawing penalties and then actually converting them into goals whenever they did get their few chances. And yeah. I think part of that was, you know, two years ago when they were so effective and, and had that magical season and the coming out party was Oscar Clefbaum was really turning heads with his aggressiveness and his shot from the point and sort of that different weapon or different um, kind of dynamic that he added to that power play. And, you know, last year there was it was just such a mess for everything in Edmonton. But he was playing at the end of the season, even though he probably needed surgery. And I don't know, like it's after two games, it's too early to tell with anything. But what do you think about sort of that entire subplot and whether last year was a, a decent indication of who he is, or what it was two years ago, or sort of what's going on with that entire ordeal? Yeah, you know what? Uh, there's two things I want to talk about there. If we start with Clefbaum, um, I think, I mean, he had the shoulder injury, which is obviously limiting, especially in, in terms of shooting, mm-hmm. uh, which will affect his power play performance. And on 5-on-5, five uh, five five, he got PDO'd. Uh, I mean, he had the lowest uh, on-ice shooting percentage and save percentage, percentage out of any regular Oilers defenseman. So, and that obviously, obviously affects his self-confidence, which probably in that will affect his power play performance. Mm-hmm. So I definitely expect uh, Clefum to bounce back. He had a good summer. He told me he, I mean, he missed a little bit. Uh, he had to rehab a little bit at the start of the summer, but he had like good, a good two months or whatever of, of good preparation this summer. Uh, so he told me like, there's nothing to blame there. Like I had a good summer um, and physically he's ready to bounce back. And I think there's definitely, there's a bounce back uh, waiting for him there. Uh, however how good he is like i don't know is he number one because the orders need a number one i don't know if he's a number one uh that's a different story but i expect him to be better and the other part and i would love to have you weigh in on that is mm-hmm. with the other power play it's bugged me even two years ago when they were good it bugged me so much that they played mcdavid as a lefty uh, dictating the play from the right circle and then you have platform was who's left in a point and a lot of times you see dry or Newton Hopkins uh, on the left circle. Mm-hmm. And to me, it doesn't make sense. Like, if you want to... I mean, I get they have a lot of lefties, but for me, the obvious solution would be to play McDavid on the left circle. They can play Dreisaitl, who has a better one-timer, on the right circle, uh, where he obviously has a lefty, has the one-timer option. And Clefbaum will be a one-timer option. 
and you can play whoever Lucic maybe in the slot. So I always wanted to see McDavid commit to playing on a strong side on a power play. I think that would be better. But I would love to have your, uh, hear your thoughts about that. No, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it, it is such an interesting wrinkle. I know that uh, a friend of the podcast, Tyler Dello, has been hammering this home for a while now. But I think it's like it's kind of unprecedented that I believe all five shots on their first power play unit are all lefties, and and that's just. Uh, something you don't see every day but it's 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 a tricky problem because obviously on the one hand you kind of want to just play your five best guys and hope they can figure it out but at the same time like geometrically you're right it seems like there isn't that great of a fit there and i wonder i don't know like just watching them so far it everything is so stagnant it seems like part of what they do best is when they're coming in off the rush and then all of a sudden if you're playing that power play game where you're just setting up in the offensive zone everything kind of grinds to a halt and it's not necessarily that surprising when your entire sort of game plan is okay let's just tee up long bombs from the point when you're not and when it's not converting into goals it's like no no wonder it's it's nothing's really happening there's no fluidity to this game yeah and I mean, for me, I don't know if it, I'm making it too easy, but if you move McDavid to left circle, I, I have him settle down there, play a couple of games, get comfortable. Mm. I think that would change the dynamic a lot, but because then you get all the one-timer options. I get that ideally you want to have a righty. Ideally, McDavid want to play on the right circle, but I mean, if there's not personnel for it, adjust. Uh, you're not never going to have a perfect situation. So for me... I would love to see it. I think it would work way better. Uh, and I'm surprised they haven't really committed to that uh, so far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, I uh, I feel like every time I do a podcast, I wind up spending like 10, 15 minutes talking about the Oilers. And yeah. uh, we're already like a week into the year, and I, I've got a bit of Oilers fatigue. So let's move on to the other team that was playing in that game. And, you know, with the Devils, it's obviously a very inspiring start to the season, I feel like. And I have to say, I'm guilty myself when we were kind of forecasting this year. It was, you know, there's some trendy teams out east with the Carolina Hurricanes, for example, or or the Florida Panthers or what have you. And, and you're thinking, OK, well, who from last year's teams that made the playoffs out east will fall out to make room for some of those trendy preseason sleepers? And it seems like kind of the natural landing spot for everyone was the Devils, just because we, you know, we all think that the penguins and the capitals and so on and so forth are, are kind of locks so you're thinking okay well if you know if there's not going to be five uh metro division teams and potentially the panthers get in as a wild card who's going to fall out it's and it always kind of came back to the devils just because they came out of nowhere last year and it seems yeah. like they were a bit fortunate but you know so far so good and obviously a key to, key to it is going to be goaltending and i'm not sure regardless of how good he looked for stretches last year, whether Keith Kincaid is going to be the answer for that and whether they can get anything out of Corey Schneider at this point. And, but the other part was always been the secondary scoring because we know that with Hall and Hishier up front, you're going to have a dominant line that's going to kind of slant the ice whenever they're out there. But I will say, so far, I've been very impressed with how Marcus Johansson has looked coming back from injury, and he adds such an interesting dynamic to that second or third line with his playmaking. And all of a sudden, if you can get just secondary scoring enough to kind of hold the fort and not completely get buried whenever that top line isn't out there all of a sudden this is a team that even if they don't make the playoffs might not necessarily fall back as far as we might have thought before the season no absolutely not i think marcus is a big part of that uh, i expect him to be at least a 40 point player uh he should hit 30 at even strength and depending on his role in the power play um 40 should be the least he gets mm-hmm. uh, and i think it looked good like uh, i would love to have his tr- transition numbers from from that oiler game in terms of zone entries and 
and so forth. He looked really good through the neutral, neutral zone, um, skating with the puck and, and setting guys up. So that's important for them. And also with, with Schneider, I think, I mean, it's kind of tricky because he's obviously getting older. He's 32 and kind of on the downside. But he also had that hip surgery. So you kinda, you're kind of curious, okay, is he – what's that really limit him, uh, that limiting? Because, I, I mean, he had – he was so good up until two years back. And then he just, he just fell off a cliff. So I kind of wonder – and maybe he's not like a top five goal in the league again ever. Mm-hmm. I would think that, but he should be better, shouldn't he, than last year? Yeah, he should be. But at the, it's it's so bizarre because for years there, he was kind of the gold standard for consistency, right? Like you could just, yeah. even when the Devils weren't any good, it was like, you're going to get 920 to 925 save percentage from Corey Schneider. That's money in the bank. And then sometimes when it goes, it goes. And obviously if it's a health related thing and you can, and you can't ever get back to a hundred percent physically, that's going to play a big role. Um, you know, I, I'd still love to think that he's not necessarily done and he's going to have a bit of a rejuvenation here. But now there were kind of the past two seasons, um, of this mm-hmm. kind of different standard for him, it's tough to have too much confidence. But you're right. I mean, with how much the Devils have invested in him and how still relatively unproven Keith Kincaid is as a guy who could realistically start 55, 60 games for them and be above league average, like they're going to need to figure that out if they do actually have playoff aspirations. Absolutely. Because, I mean, they look solid uh, in terms of team play. And they do have that first line, and Marcus can be good on the second line. And, I mean, guys can take steps. Uh, but I still think they're going to regress a little bit. Mm. And I think Schneider has to make up for that. And if he does, they could absolutely make the playoffs again, even though myself, like you, uh, didn't have them in a playoff spot. I do like watching them play, though. I, I often get uh, critique from Devils fans that I'm too hard on the team. And, you know, it seems like kind of a, a dated joke for from years ago when they were the most boring team in the league and they would play the trap and shut down and everything would grind to a halt and they'd have these games where both teams would have, like, it would, the shot the shot count at the end of the game would be like 19 to 16 or something and you'd be like, oh god, that, that was a dreadful game to watch. Like, that, this Devils team under John Hines is certainly much more free-flowing and fast-paced and you alluded to that trans- transition play and, and how uh, Marcus Johansson brings that to the table but I love watching this team play from the perspective of they constantly seem like they're moving and it's not necessarily even um, you know kind of like with the Penguins when when Mike Sullivan came aboard it's not necessarily the guys skating that fast themselves even though they do have fast skaters it's the mentality of once you get the puck look to do something with it and move it quickly because obviously if you're able to pass it like that uh the puck itself can travel a lot faster than any individual player can except i guess Connor mcdavid <laughs> yeah the, maybe <laughs> oh, but yeah but yeah i i certainly agree like they they play well they're well coached mm-hmm. uh gotta give Heinz credit th- uh for that they're well coached so i mean they're still kind of unsexy for whatever reason. Maybe, as you said, that like lingering feeling from years back is still there. But uh, they are—they play fast, so they should probably get more credit than they are getting uh, for the way they are playing in terms of enter- entertainment value. I don't know if you heard this, Jonathan, but this is uh, this is one of the kind of dumbest, most hockey uh, <laughs> anecdotes that that I'd heard. But I remember, like, I think it was last year. Now, um, Elliot Friedman was on TV and he was talking about John Hines. And I think it was sort of at the start of the season when the Devils were catching people by surprise and they were kind of a hot topic. And he had this story about how, you know, Hines had for years uh, been coaching the Pittsburgh Penguins AHL team and they'd obviously had a lot of success and he was 
kind of tossed around as a as a hot coaching candidate at the NHL level. But there were numerous teams that didn't want to hire him because they thought he was too short and wasn't a firm enough presence behind the bench. And <laughs> I mean, that's obviously the, the kind of the dumbest thing you could possibly think, and that that would actually play a role in whether a guy can coach or not. And I'm really glad that he's showing so far early on in his New Jersey tenure that. Um, you know, the people that didn't hire him for that are kind of regretting it at this point, for sure. You know what? Isn't Lula Morello really short, though? Uh, short? Yeah, and, yeah. And he's like the scariest man in the league, so... Yes, yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. that. <laughs> Uh, I agree with that 100. Um, percent Okay, let's take a let's take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor. And um, on the other end of things, you and I are going to bounce around the league a little bit and talk about the California teams and whatever else comes up. Awesome. Here's a sad truth: not everyone can have the luscious, long flowing golden locks of Washington Capitals prospect Axel Janssen Fialbi. In fact, forget the golden locks for a second. Most men have bigger problems to deal with because 66 percent of men actually lose their hair by age 35. The thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's already too late. Because it's a lot easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. So I ask you, do you want a bald spot to pop up or your hairline to recede? Or do you want to do something about it first? Why do guys always turn to weird solutions or just do nothing at all and stand by and watch it happen when they can turn to medicine and science and get ahead of it? I know this might be kind of lost on uh, or falling on deaf ears for a hockey podcast where, you know, in the sport and the culture of it, uh, you know, stuff like cuts and bruises and black eyes and all sorts of stuff are glorified and the idea of being well-groomed and taking good care of yourself uh, might be scoffed at, but the reality is... Um, is that you should take, contr- take control of your life and look your best and feel your best. And 4HIMS is going to help you do that because if you go to 4HIMS.com, it's really going to act as a one stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and other wellness supplements for men. Thanks to science, baldness can be optional, and HIMS is going to connect you with real doctors and medical grade solutions to treat that hair loss. So you don't have to worry about, you know, snake oil pills, um, you know, these are prescriptions backed by science. Uh, there's You don't have to go to a waiting room or have awkward interactions with in-person doctor visits. You can save yourself countless hours and stress by just doing all of this online by yourself. It's really so easy. All you got to do is answer a few quick questions and the doctor is going to review it and then prescribe you and the products are shipped directly to your door. So to get in on this and order now, uh, my listeners are actually going to get a trial month of Hims for just $5 today, right now while supplies last. Just go to the website and check out all the full details, and it's going to be really easy. Um, this would typically cost hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy, but here uh, you're going to get hooked up with all of it for just a couple bucks. So go to 4 slash PDO. That's 4 slash PDO. For himself.com slash PDO. Now let's get back to the Pocky PDO cast. All right. Um, let's start let's start with the ducks. Um, I know obviously you um you know you just got back, you haven't probably had time to um reimburse yourself in the California scene necessarily and spend that much time around Anaheim this season, but they've uh you know they've only played four games so far, but man, it has been uh an adventure in Anaheim you know they've they've won three of the games the only game they didn't win they lost at a shootout so they've gotten seven of the eight possible points but when you look at all the numbers it, it seems like kind of like stretches last year it's just a lot of John Gibson and then uh not much else behind that yeah and I mean at this point it's only about about staying alive I think for me I mean it's so easy to say but 
this team, they're so, in terms of offense and driving play, they're so dependent on Ryan Getzloff. Mm-hmm. Like, he makes such a difference in terms of, of just controlling play. Uh, I mean, it, it is a, on, like, the, defen- the, the defense is good. The top four is really good. Gibson is good, obviously, really good. But they need Getzloff so bad. So at this point, they just got to stay alive. Uh, the other guys, I mean, Kasha, I'm, I really like Andre Kasha, and Eves is obviously a good player as well, and, and Perry might still be able to score. But if you look at that injury list, it's Getzloff's got to get back. And until he gets back, if they can stay alive and win, win games in whatever way, uh, that's good enough. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that injured list. Wow, and then you add in Nick Ritchie as well, who still hasn't doesn't have his contract as an RFA, and it's 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 tough. I I, I wonder if you know you're right if they can kind of hang around here, and John Gibson's doing a marvelous job of ensuring that they do that. Uh, it's it feels like we're just rerunning our conversations about this team last year when they had yeah. a bunch of injuries, and we were like, yeah. well, as long as they can stay afloat and stay in a playoff position. They could be potentially interesting in in the later stages once they get healthy. Now, the issue with that is it's not necessarily like we're talking about the youngest team here, and the guys that are injured are generally, um, you know, either in their 30s or have a ton of miles on them already. So we could get into a bit of danger of just assuming that once they get back from the injuries they have right now, that they're going to stay healthy after and not have some sort of setback or different injury. But you're right. I mean, I wonder if they will be better off for this early season stretch, assuming they can hang on just because, you know, NHL teams are so conservative with their young players and they typically don't like to play them unless they're really forced to. But this team, out of necessity, I mean, you look at the numbers and it's like Sam Steele is their forward who's playing the most and he was playing in major junior last year. I mean, you go on down the line, Max Comtois, who's really impressed me with his speed and playmaking so far uh so on and so forth troy terry isaac lundestrom um as a guy who was a late first round pick making it in in his draft plus one season is something you very rarely see in the nhl level so the fact that they have all these young guys and they're throwing them into the deep end and now i don't think those guys are necessarily thriving yet but just having this sort of experience where they otherwise might not have had it could potentially down the road lead to big things for them Absolutely, I think so. And the division itself, it's kind of open. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously the Sharks are favorites uh, after the Carlson edition. But uh, apart from that, from my perspective, I mean, there's no real standout. Like Arizona is probably on the low end. They have to have a lot of things to write from to have a conversation. But the other teams, they're all in it. So, I mean, I think the Ducks, as you said, like if they get the young guys in, if they get more comfortable, um, and then they get the older guys back and they are still able to uh, to produce, then they might be able to do something. But, I mean, it's it's a tough team to judge. And, you know, Gibson is a little bit injury prone. So for me, this it's a really hard team, team to get a feel for. Uh, like, I don't really know what to think of him. Um, and also with Getzloff, I think it's he's such a driving force on the team. Mm-hmm. But he's getting older. Yeah. Like, you never know. Like, Perry is obviously – uh, in a big drop-off, and, and Kessler hasn't been himself since he came back from the last injury at all. So, I mean, age catches everyone, and Getzloff, so far, um, has been able to still play at an elite level, uh, point of game and um, and all that, but this might be the year right, when he gets older fast. Yeah, well, and you look at that team, obviously the blue line is, is tremendous. It's right up there as a top handful in the league when they're healthy, and, and Gibson... I thought he should have been a Vesna candidate last year, and he seems certainly seems to be on a bit of a revenge tour to make sure that he gets it finally this year. But 
they got exposed so badly in that first round series against San Jose where just, you know, they look like a team who was old and slow and they were like spinning their wheels in the mud while San Jose was just skating laps around them. And it was as lopsided a a sweep as you're going to see in today's NHL. And out of necessity, I mean, you look at the moves they made this summer and I understand, you know, when you have a team with this many veterans and this many high paid, high paid salaries, you don't have a lot of financial flexibility. So it's not like they had the luxury of going out and bringing in an impact guy or three or four middle tier guys who are going to suddenly make this a fast team. So maybe this youth infusion is ultimately something they desperately needed, even if they kind of stumbled into it in an unfortunate way because of all the injuries. Because I think if, you know, it was kind of trying to jam a square peg into a round hole where it's like, yeah, you could probably make the playoffs again and be competitive in the regular season just out of sheer force. But once you get into the playoffs and you're playing against the San Jose's, the Winnipeg's, the Nashville's, the Vegas team, so on and so forth, you're going to be exposed because it looks like they're playing a completely different sport than you speed wise. Oh, absolutely. But I think for this team, it's mainly about they got to make the playoffs. I think I'm also playing in a market that where hockey hasn't really caught on. I think having a winning team is important and maybe even more so than actually go all the way, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like if you can win a lot of games and win a round or whatever, win a couple of rounds, people are going to be into it. Uh, and obviously you want the championship and that's the ultimate goal, but it's also important to be competitive when you play in a, in a market that is an established. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it. And I think as long as Getzloff is good, they're probably just going to try and try and do as good as they can around him. And these younger guys are going to be like necessary for that because they're cheaper and whatnot. And I mean, you got Gibson. Gibson yeah. can you, he can win you around, yeah, or two even. Uh, so there's a little bit of an X factor on the, with this team. I, I'm not overly high on them, but hmm. they're interesting because they're so hard to get a feel for. Well, they're interesting, and if you look, you know before the season when we were doing our projections and our picks and all that it was easy to be um you know a bit out of recency bias because it was the most recent thing we'd seen it was a bit easy to get excited about this specific division because it felt like there was so much incoming talent with Kovalchuk going to the Kings and Carlson going to the Sharks and Arizona ended last year so strong that they were kind of the, the trendy preseason sleeper out west and so on and so forth you know the Flames bring in James Neal Vegas gets Pacioretty and Stasny and so on and so forth but if you look at it right now, and we're obviously, listen, I, we're a week in, a lot can change, but so far it's it's generally a pretty underwhelming bunch. It seems like all of these teams are kind of stumbling out of the gate, and there's it's easy to see the flaws with you know with Calgary and if Mike Smith can hold up a net. Uh, Vegas is having sort of that inevitable regression, and Marc-Andre Fleury, his play has really suffered from last year. So all of a sudden, um, maybe, that, maybe we were a bit too high on this specific division, and maybe just kind of treading water for now is going to be good enough for this team with Gibson and Nett. I mean, at the same time, I think I don't need to tell you that he's probably not going to keep up a 955 save percentage. And if they keep, if they keep uh, controlling like 38% or whatever they're at right now of the five on five shot attempts, it probably will end poorly for them because that's like tanking Buffalo Sabres levels. So um, they're going to need to write that a little bit, but assuming Getzlaff gets back and they get some of these guys in the lineup, I I imagine they're going to find a better mix there and at least be competent enough. I think so, yeah. I mean, given the the defensemen they have, they should be able to to push play a little bit better, even though the forwards are lacking a little bit. Uh, I don't know, like the last game, I haven't seen the first three games, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I did watch the Arizona game on site and uh, 
they played um, uh, Manson and Hampus Lindelof part. Um, Peter Hampus with Montour and, and uh, Manson with Cam Fowler. I, I don't know if that's that's the way to go. That Lindholm Manson pairing is so good, so maybe they can drive play a little bit better if they get those guys back. Those, those guys back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Something worth uh, trying, I think. Well, so I'm curious because I remember last year I gave you a bit of an assignment. I'm not sure if uh, you ever went through with it, but I did want you to uh, using your Swedish connection out there to talk to uh, Jake Silverberg about his shooting percentage and how come someone who generally, I mean, if you look at him, has one of the more beautiful shots in the league. And when he does score, it looks so pretty was always shooting below league average. Um, my next assignment for you is, is I'd love for you to pick uh, Hampus Lindholm's brain a bit more about defending, because I feel like we typically as fans don't know nearly enough about it. And the stats are so bad for what makes a good defenseman, right? Like we know that Hampus Lindholm and Josh Manson are one of the best shutdown pairings in the league because you just look at the numbers and whenever they're out there, the other team can't seem to generate anything. But like, what goes into that? Because I, I I often think that defense is so tricky to evaluate because typically the best defense is when nothing happens. So like, how do you as a defenseman, like, is it uh, it's about positioning, about stick control, about the gap? Like what when you're out there, like what what are you looking to do and sort of what from a player's perspective uh, makes them feel like a job well done? Because, you know, all these guys will block shots because they're crazy people and they don't feel pain. But I typically think that even a a hockey player would tell you that if you're blocking a ton of shots all the time, it's generally not a sign that, you know, you're in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I agree. And I did talk to Silverberg about it, actually. Ooh, what did he say? Well, uh, I mean, he didn't really have a good answer. Obviously, it's hard to, I don't think he (laughs) even knew the numbers. Yeah. But he did say that uh, I am shooting a lot for rebounds. Mm-hmm. And he, he does do that when it comes down to the right side, especially when he played with the Kessler-Cogliano line. Just throwing almost, not passing, but hard low shots at, at the pads. And maybe if you do that, I mean, two or three shots more than the regular guy, it's going to add up in terms of the shooting percentage. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that's an explanation really, but that was the only the- theory we could come up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I don't know. Maybe he shoots more for and the regular player. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, you know who's interesting in terms of shooting percentage, though? Talking about Swedes. Mm. It's Ricky Raquel. Oh, I thought you were going to say Ricky Raquel. No, because Nylander is the same as Silverberg. Mm-hmm. Nylander is shooting like league average for a forward, and I would not say he's an average shooter in terms of NHL forwards. So yeah. uh, that, that one's interesting for me as well. He's done it two years in a row now. Yeah, um, no, that is... I, I, yeah, I guess obviously, um, you know, you have to kind of look at the shot selection itself as well right like maybe if you're uh if you are playing a bit more on the perimeter or you if you if you're shooting for rebounds like you said or if you're the type of player that um you know you have such supreme confidence in your shot and your skills that maybe sometimes you're taking shots that aren't necessarily the greatest whereas guys who don't kind of all, all these guys obviously think very highly of themselves and their skills and they should they're at the nhl level but maybe if you're playing a, di- a different role or you're asked to do different things on a team you're not going to be just shooting all the time you might be kind of waiting to pick your spots a little bit more so i'm sure that kind of plays into it as well but you're right i mean a guy like william nylander is one of the most skilled players in the league so the fact that it doesn't convert into the results is always a bit of an eyebrow raising thing yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see where that goes if he ends up signing. Sometimes yeah, yeah. About um, so 
the Sharks. I know that uh, you got to watch them a little bit today before we started recording. You were telling me they were one of the teams you're going to be watching tonight. Um, I think their latest update is their one for 18 on the power play, I believe. Um, and, you know, they've looked better from what I've seen recently. They had one power play tonight against the Rangers where they were just whipping the puck around and it, they were doing exactly what I was hoping they'd do from the perspective of... Um, it was very fluid. It was kind of the opposite of what I was talking about with the Oilers. Like Brent Burns was kind of just roving around the ice. And there was one point where uh, Carlson hit him with a beautiful east-west pass that was going a million miles an hour right to, right on his stick. And it didn't go in, but it was the type of play that makes you think like if they can do this all the time, it's going to be as scary a combination as we thought when the trade happened. Now, obviously, um, five games in it hasn't translated yet and it's looked like there's been a bit of a feeling out process do you how are you feeling about that do you think it's just one of those things where the talent will ultimately win out and they kind of need to just gel together since they only really played a couple preseason games before the regular season started or do you think there's something to the idea that there's like too many cooks in the kitchen maybe getting burns off of that top power play unit and splitting those two guys up might be the better way to go about it moving forward you know what? I think this is number one. I think this, it's the human element of this. Like the skill they have, they should be better. Uh, not only in terms of scoring, but in terms of creating as well. And I think that it might be they might feel the pressure uh, of being expected to be so good on a power play. They might feel like, especially from Uder coming in, like not wanting to step on anyone's toes. Like, okay, should I take the shots? Should I control the puck? Whatever. It might be that. Uh, I mean, there are professionals, but there are still humans. So I think that is important. And also the other thing, for me watching him, I'm going to go against you now because I think they're too fluid. Like, I've seen Burns down on the right circle way too much. Uh, I've seen Eric <laughs> play on the left circle. I, for me, I think get Carlson on a point, get Burns on the left circle. Because I think, like, the Sharks last year, their problem, the power play was Burns taking too many shots from the point. Yep. As we know, that's a very low percentage play. Mm-hmm. Get Burns to the left circle, um, and then you have Carlson, who's not necessarily a shooter in that sense, although he obviously has a good shot, but he's more uh, more a guy who makes plays and, and whatnot, and he can snap those little wristers or, or pass the puck around. So I would love to see Eric on the point, Burns on the left circle, and then just take it from there. Uh, whoever's on the right circle, whoever plays down low, I mean, obviously, Pavelski's in front of that, but that that's not as important. But I, just to have them settle in, get comfortable with each other, it's so easy. Like, I can always defer to Burns, and he can always fire away at left circle. It's kind of like Ovi. Yeah. Burns, it's an Ovi, but he's about as close as you can come in this league. So, uh, for me, that I think that will be a good start, because I watch, uh, obviously, game today, I watch a, a little bit of them playing um, the other two games uh, before this as well, and it's been, I don't know, I haven't seen that set up, Eric on the point and Burns on the left circle, almost a single time. And that surprises me. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that would definitely make sense just, you know, from on paper, the perspective of, you're right, Carlson is at his best when he's sort of playing that quarterback out there and he's just flinging it around and finding the right guy and hitting him in stride. And with Burns, uh, it's, it's tricky because on the one hand, you're right, he is... Um, a, sh- a shoot first guy and we've seen that the past couple of years but i feel like part of 
what made him special in that regard was sort of that ability to uh, generate a lot of velocity and, and get the puck on net from weird angles without necessarily having to kind of wind up for that slap shot, right? Like teams would know that he was going to shoot the puck and he would still just kind of a flick low, a, a quick little wrist shot with a flick of the wrist and all of a sudden the puck would go flying. And if he's kind of just loading up there for the one-timer, I wonder, you're right, the human element is is a big part of this. You know, we kind of, uh, as armchair GMs or as people kind of forecasting this stuff, it's easy for us to kind of view them as chess pieces and go like, okay, this guy goes here and this guy goes there. But if you're Brent Byrne, just put yourself in his shoes a little bit. I, you know, I understand that, Sometimes you just kind of have to listen to the coach and ultimately uh, it's going to work that way. But if you're him, like you've won a Norris the past couple of years, you're putting up 70 points, you're loving life as the guy who's shooting 300 something times and the puck's constantly kind of flowing through you. And all of a sudden someone comes in and tells you like, hey, uh, you're just going to stand here at the circle and wait for the puck to come to you. Like obviously, um, assuming Carlson's getting him the puck and the puck and the puck starts going in the net and I'm sure he won't complain, but it is obviously a bit of an adjustment. So I'm not necessarily surprised that five games in, they still haven't kind of hit their top gear yet. No. And I think, I mean, I don't think that going forward, uh, that should be the solution with him as like a trigger man only, hmm. especially getting Thornton back. I mean, if he's working down low, you can have Burns kind of sneaking to the slot or whatever. I mean, he can roam, the way he does, the way he should, because he has a special creativity in terms of finding space and just doing whatever he feels like. But I think just at the start, like do the simple thing at the start and then you build on that. Don't try to be too much right now. Mm -hmm. Just go for that simple play and then you add. Once you feel comfortable, okay, we know this, we can work with like the set setup where everyone is in the position they should be. Then you can add the next dimension, uh, which is more of a, more of a surprise element. Uh, but I think, I mean, being obviously it's arm, armchair GMs, it's, it's easy to just say that. Yeah. But I would like to see that. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, like, if you just look at it, so they lose Joe Thornton early on, and obviously having a guy of his ability and sort of gravitas as a playmaker would all of a sudden... I imagine make things gel a lot more smoothly, a lot more quickly. And then they go on this East coast road trip and they're playing a bunch of games in the road and a weird time zone. And then all of a sudden, like I'm not making excuses for them, but you can sort of see why they're not necessarily just, you know, taking the league by storm and winning every game uh, like we thought they would. But at the same time, I do think, you know, they had what 40 plus shots easily today against the Rangers and as they should against the team of the Rangers caliber. But you saw it, they're scoring eight goals against the Flyers, and we've sort of seen as these games have gone on the flashes that inspire confidence. Where, as I was saying about the Ducks, like I, I, I they're winning games, but I haven't necessarily seen reasons to believe that's going to continue with the Sharks team. I do feel like um, maybe we should have tempered expectations a little bit. I understand adding a guy like Carlson all of a sudden it's very easy to just pencil them in into the Stanley Cup final, and the NHL doesn't always work that way, but. The, the upside is still there. I honestly believe that watching this team the past couple of games, um, they are going to figure it out. And once they do, I think they're going to be a nightmare to deal with for oppositions. Yeah. And as you said, like earlier on, like uh, the division itself, I mean, no one looks amazing. Mm-hmm. So I think once the Sharks figure it out, they should have decently comfortable, uh, comfortable ride to the playoffs. So they're in a good spot, uh, I think. Yeah, I know. I agree. I, and the last California team here, I feel like, you know, we talked about we we're going to do the California teams and I don't really have any notes about the Kings. I haven't watched them play much this year. I have seen flashes and 
I'm really happy Ilya Kovalchuk is back in our lives full time, and I, I really enjoy watching him play. And that top combination with him and Kopitar is as dynamic and fun as it gets in the league. But I feel like a lot of the preseason questions we had are still unanswered, and obviously not having Jonathan Quick now, um, as skeptical as I've been of his sort of uh, labeling as an elite goalie in the past, there's no doubt that he's a better option than Jack Campbell and Peter du- Peter Budai. So they're going to have to kind of hold the fort down until he comes back and until they get Dustin Brown back and a team that doesn't necessarily have a ton of depth to begin with is fighting an uphill battle right now but hopefully uh for their sake this division's uninspiring start as a whole so far keeps the door open a little bit for them to kind of tread water and they had a good game today against the Montreal Canadiens so maybe that's a step in the right direction for them absolutely and they have the advantage of having top end players and I mean hockey is a strong wing sport if you have Drew Doughty with whatever defenseman on the left side, that's going to be a terrific pairing. If you have Anse Kopitar on the line, that's going to be a great line. So uh, I think they they should be able to do a lot just because of their top guys. And Kovalchuk obviously adds something there or adds a lot. And uh, and Jeff Carter is also an important piece. So I think like the top-end quality they have, uh, if you compare it to some of the other teams on the division, it's better. So that should should make up for depth issues as long as they stay healthy. Or should, but it could. Yeah. I shouldn't say should, but could. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I promise I'll, uh, any Kings fans listening, I'll, I'll revisit them more and I'll actually do a deep dive on them later. I do need to watch a bit more of them before I uh, can comment. What do you, uh, so you're watching the Canucks today, you're watching Elias Pedersen, who is the talk of the league and deservedly so looks like he's uh gonna have a point in every single game for the rest of his career and win all the awards and be the best player ever and make people forget about the city and so it's it's uh it's it's crazy what he's been able to do so far especially um just the massive transition it must be going you know he was playing in a pro league obviously last year but it still must be a massive changeover uh just because of the details and the schedule and so on and so forth so for him to kind of come and be this effective right away um I got to see, I'm, even I am a bit surprised because I thought he was kind of a trendy Calder pick and I thought the talent was so good and his projections from what he was uh, capable of doing overseas led me to believe he was going to be a really good NHL player one day. I just didn't expect it to be this soon. No, absolutely not. And we should also remember that, I mean, there's going to be tough stretches for him. It's not like he's going to score every game and and, uh, and we'll, we'll see where it goes. But I think that the one thing that we do know by now is that it kind of works like he can still do his stuff against NHL players, the Deeks and whatnot. So even when the stretches come, when he's not scoring or not, like not producing, put up the points, we still know that he's, he can do it and he can hang with them in terms of the physical uh, aspect of the game. And that's really important. So, and he seems to be so cool and everything like he's, he's so calm and relaxed and everything. So I've been really impressed. Like I haven't watched him a whole lot, being over here hmm. uh, uh but obviously i've heard the hype from seeing the highlights talking to people back home um so it, it's um it's just fun to see and i think it's good for vancouver like they're not in a bad spot right now they have a couple of good really good prospects so i mean it's been a couple of rough years but they should be able to could at least turn it around relatively quick i think yeah i mean jonathan i 
they're in a pretty rough spot. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like obviously having uh, Pedersen be this good and, and Besser is at least giving fans reasons to watch the games and buy jerseys and go pay money to watch the Canucks when they're here in Vancouver. But it's still, I mean, you look at some of these performances and the goaltending and the defense in front of them, and I think there's going to be a lot of nights where they're uh, they're losing like 6-2 oh, oh, and giving up oh, 50 shots. <laughs> this season is going to be terrible. Yes. I'm thinking long-term, like... I mean, I'm thinking Queen Hughes and Ule Ulevi playing yeah. on the back again, Thatcher Demko in that, and them, Besser and Pedersen, and whatever they get this summer. Uh, it, I mean, it's not like it's perfect, but it's it can be. I don't think it has to take that long. And they obviously have Bo Horvath already and, and some other pieces. It's not, I'm not saying that they're going to be a cup champion, but they should be able to build a good team around those guys. Hmm. I am kind of curious. So, you know, back back to Pedersen for a second. He was so good in the Swedish league last year. I, I did want to pick your brain a little bit about, uh, you know, I don't necessarily, living here in, in North America, I don't get a ton of opportunities to actually watch Swedish games, Swedish, Swedish hockey league games. I'm generally just kind of looking at the box scores and the numbers and trying to translate how that production is going to carry over to the NHL. But, you know, we, we typically think of it as a league that um, – is right up there. I guess the KHL is still considered to be the second best pro league in the world, but it's right up there in terms of sort of physical readiness, at least. And, you know, if you can hold your own there playing against grown men as a young player, that typically is a good sign that you're going to be a guy who's going to be able to come over to North America and at least be a contributor. Um, sort of what, 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 what's the game like over there from sort of what, tactics teams are playing like and is creativity as encouraged or is it much more of that sort of um north american brand where it's kind of more conservative and defensive structured and just kind of what's what's the methodology there compared to some of the other european leagues and also the nhl as a whole well the sense i get uh when i talk to players who played in in sweden and also in switzerland and or the khl is that the Swedish Elite League is very well coached. Mm. Uh, so, as you said, the KHL is number two, and that's skill-driven. There's a lot of really good, talented players right. in the, the KHL. And in Switzerland, too, like, the top player, get they get paid more in Switzerland than in Sweden, for instance, and it's a comfortable life. I know, I think the farthest you'll go for an away game is four hours on a bus. Uh, that's the first you can ever go playing in Switzerland. Otherwise, it's like an hour there or whatever, and it's beautiful. So, that's a good place to play, and a lot of skilled, like, in their 30s whatever play there sweden it's it's very well coached um meaning it's not necessarily an open league in that sense i would compare it to the nhl like it's skill driven like or skill is encouraged it's gotten that way uh the last few years just like in the nhl um and there's way more focus on the play with the puck and being create, uh, creative but it's also so well coached. So, I mean, you can't only focus on the offensive side of stuff. You also have to have uh, good defense, just like in the NHL. So it's, I think that's part of why guys come over and do well. Like, we have a lot of, like, Swedish third, three, third or fourth line guys that are well coached. Mm-hmm. So they can play in a system. They understand how you play in a system. They understand how you move on the PK. Uh, so even if their skill isn't high enough, um, to keep an Indiana shell uh, in like a top two role, they can still contribute. Uh, I think we talked about the Sharks before. Take take a guy like Melker Carlson. Right. He, he's not an overly talented guy at all. Like he was never drafted. He was never a high score in juniors, uh, relatively speaking. But he was tremendously well coached. Uh, and he learned to play with good players. Um, 
He played with some elite talent in Shalafio went before he came over. And he learned how to play system, how to play the PK. And that translated into um, something that Peter Bohr liked. And he kept, they kept him around. So that, I think that's part of why we see so many Swedish and shell players. Yeah. I don't know if that was an answer to your question, but... No, that makes sense. I'm, I'm always fascinated about the differences in approach and sort of tactics, right? Because I know that, um, or at least I believe that, especially in the developmental side of things in the earlier years, like overseas, especially in Sweden, they're prioritizing practice as opposed to games much more. And you look at the schedules and I know like here in North America, it's just game, game after game after game. Whereas if you're practicing a lot more, all of a sudden you can kind of work on uh, some more of those details and maybe refine it and, and play a more structured game. And what you're talking about, uh, as soon as you said, uh, you know, it's a very well coached league. All of a sudden, like mm-hmm. a, an alarm went off in my head that it was like, "Oh God, that must be very boring." <laughs> because I know that yeah. I know, like you know, the common joke is, but it is true. Like it's early on in this first week, everyone's going crazy about the high goal totals, and you know, Toronto's beating Chicago seven six, and it seems like every night there's a lopsided score and a ton of goals being put on the board. And I don't want to be a Debbie Downer or a party pooper, but this exact thing happened last year, and it feels like whether it's a lack of preparation or whether it's kind of teams playing a bit more loose. I, I think as the season gets going as, and as coaches get a chance to really implement their systems and watch tape and hammer some of these guys in practice, all of a sudden you're going to see a lot more of those 2-1 slow-paced games that we see as the year gets going. Oh, yeah, and that's the way it is. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously you can do stuff in terms of, um, uh, I don't know, rules and uh, rules uh, rule enforcement, uh, but... Um, I mean, it's part of the sport. Um, and I think, honestly, like, maybe I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm an old-school guy now, but, uh, like, I kind of like, especially the playoffs, I kind of like the low-scoring games. Mm-hmm. As long as they're, like, I'm, I mean, because in the playoffs, you get the excitement because the games mean so much. So even if it's 2-1 to one or whatever, as long as the game is tight, it's still going to be entertaining. But it is fun to see Austin Matthews scoring at a hundred and a million goals for some pace or whatever he's at right now. Um, But yeah, the system and going back to what you said about uh, how you develop players, it's it's very different in Sweden. And it's not like you don't move like I noticed this living here for a couple of years, like how you put players like in you moving around to different teams or like you might even move to have your 11 year old play in a different team or whatever. Right. And that would, that wouldn't happen in Sweden. I mean, most of the guys, they play with their hometown team until they're 16. And then, then they go to the school system is different, but college, um, it's like a year older or whatever, (laughs) but college and play hockey, um, for three years. And you might do that in your hometown as well. A lot of guys did. Uh, most of the good NHL players, Swedish NHL players, played in their hometown until they were 18, 19. Only played for one team. Uh, so it's, I guess it's much more of um, uh, a stable situation. You'll live at home. Um, you'll you'll play with your buddies. And maybe that's sometimes it's good because players can focus on developing mm-hmm. a safe environment. Sometimes maybe players would benefit from, I don't know, being pushed or, I don't know, put in a tougher spot and that pushes them to being something greater than they are. Uh, but it's just, it's just different. Uh, I'm not ready to say what's better or not uh, in terms of a pure player development perspective, but it is different. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I think it's good. It'd be obviously very boring if uh, it was the same everywhere, and, and it would be very just kind of generic and robotic. So I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad there's differences. Um, let's plug some stuff. What uh, what are you up to these days now that you're back in the in the West Coast? Uh, I guess you're going to be kind of catching up and bouncing around some arenas and watching a bunch of these games. You you obviously got the podcast. Uh, let the listeners know kind of where they can check you out, what you're up to, and what they can expect from you moving forward. Yeah, what I do, I mean, uh, most of the stuff I do is in Swedish, so uh, uh, that's it's going to be hard to follow. But I do, I do uh, the, the Swedish right shoulder. It's called the Assad. It's like Sportsnet, but in, in uh, and our best to uh, get people to watch the NHL. Uh, it's because time difference. Um, we, we work at, uh, we're working with NHL, uh, and again, back to where we started. Uh, in the NHL's like effort to make the league more global, they dedicated like so that we get an early start weekend, which is super important for us. So your uh, PM or uh, sorry, one PM start on the East Coast would be seven in Sweden, which is obviously an ideal time game. So all those games that are super annoying if if you're in the states or Canada are so important for us. Um, so that's what I do. We'll work with the. Uh, features for that um, and produce material for the broadcast and, and uh, sit downs and whatnot and then the podcast uh, which is obviously also hard for Canadian or American listeners to enjoy And but um, I do try to put some stuff out on, on Twitter on English every now and then and, and such so um, maybe there's something there I'm sure there's some there. Listen, I, I enjoy following you and I enjoy checking out your work. And even though uh, sometimes I, I don't understand what you guys are saying, I, I like listening. It's uh, it's entertaining and there's always good nuggets in there. And, and honestly, some of your tweets in Swedish are even better than your tweets in English, I got to say, just because the uh, the generic translator that it uses is so bad that it always leads to high comedy. Yeah, I love when you send me the screenshots. There's, oh, there's God, been a couple yeah. of throughout the years. It's, They're uh, always so weirdly erotic, too. It makes no sense. It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> That's good, though. Yeah. It's gotta, gotta, it adds something to the game, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Hockey after hours. Um, all right, Jonathan, this was a blast. I'm glad we uh, finally got to do this. And uh, hopefully we'll cross paths. I know I'm, I'm still bummed out that I missed you just because of uh, scheduling when you were here in Vancouver for the uh, Sedin's last home game. But I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Paz will cross at some point and we'll get to do an in-person one of these one of these days i'm hoping so dimitri it's great to be on i really appreciate you having me all right man chat soon oh we do that thank you the hockey pedio cast with dimitri filipovich follow on twitter at dim filipovich and on soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pedio cast